Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello there, Al Murray here. Now, as one or two of you may know, I'm partial to a glass or two of an evening. Sometimes beer, quite often these days, wine. In fact, wine has appeared more than once in the pod, from stories of British soldiers discovering a hidden stash as they crossed the Rhine, to James and I trying a bottle of Ukrainian sweet wine bottled in 1939 and spirited away as the Germans approached in 1941. And now, as a listener to We Have Ways, you can enjoy a free case of wine, courtesy of our good friends at Wine52. All you need to do is go to wine52.com slash ways and cover the postage costs of £9.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered to your door. I absolutely love trying wines from different countries and Wine52 showcases revered regions like Bordeaux and Emilia-Romagna, but also exceptional wines from countries like Georgia and Bulgaria. This fantastic wine club takes you on an incredible odyssey through the world of wine. You can have the choice of mixed, red-only or white-only cases. And you also get Glug magazine, which delves into each region's wine culture, plus two tasty snacks. Your welcome case will include the beautiful Meridiano by Compagnia Mediterranea del Vino, a complex red with notes of blackberry, cherry and plum jam on the nose, and a lovely white wine called Lucasia by Agresti Vini, a light and crisp wine with fresh notes of gooseberry, honeysuckle and jasmine. After your free case, you'll join the monthly wine club. No minimum commitment. If it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. So remember, that's wine52.com slash ways to claim your free case of wine today. Enjoy. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, your Second World War podcast, and with all your Second World War needs. And we are, well, it's part two of how many about the epic confrontation between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany in the summer of 1943, the Battle of Kursk, of course. The biggest tank battle in history, isn't it? Uh, well, we'll get to that. Uh, and also, I think it's appropriate to use achtung, achtung today, because obviously we've with all those tanks of the fifth tanks guards army coming towards you. Yes, I think there's a lot of actung going on. But um, to quote uh, Georgi Zukov before he represented the whole of the Red Army at the buffet, he said, The battle fought in the Kursk, Orel and Belgorod area was one of the most important engagements in the Great Patriotic War and the Second World War as a whole. Not only were the picked and most powerful groupings of the Germans destroyed here, but the faith of the German army and the German people in the Nazi leadership and Germany's ability to withstand the growing might of the Soviet Union was irrevocably shattered. Uh, and, I, and I know we don't do accents on this on this show, but, <laughs> but that was absolutely spot on. You nailed him. I mean, the faith of the German army and the German peoples, was it shattered? Well, I think it was a bit. <laughs> because <laughs> I think it was a bit. I, I think it was already pretty shattered. Yeah. But I think this was the kind of sort of, oh, crap moment where they well, really yeah. thought, oh, okay. I, th I think it had been shattered a long time before. Yes, but 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 you, you, I don't think even the revisionists could argue that Kursk is anything less than a, a really significant battle because it's the last time the Germans go forward on the Eastern Front, and, and, and just and, and just look at the the, the jaw dropping statistics oh, of know. those who are involved in the scale of it. You know, four million troops I plus, I know, sixty nine thousand artillery bases and launchers, yeah. thirteen thousand tanks, twelve thousand aircraft. I mean, that's a, that is a lot. We, we might query the biggest tank battle in history, but I don't think there was ever a situation where there were more than 13,000 AFVs, armoured fighting vehicles, in, 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 that air, in an area of that scale. Maybe there well, were. I don't know. Well, compare, it, not, compare it, say, with the end of July 1944. There's 380,000 Germans, 812,000 Americans, 640,000 
British and Canadian troops in Normandy. So one point yeah, eight and about about six thousand air fees. Yeah, yeah. One one point eight million men in total. Just like half the size. It's half the size, and the densities are greater. Um, uh, which is which is important. Which is important. And you know, we're we're not talking about strategic significance. We're talking about scale. Yeah. When we're kind of banding about these statistics, this this is purely an issue of scale. Yeah. And and we've said it before, and and I'm sure we'll say it again, but but do not be fooled into thinking that scale equates to strategic importance, because no. you know clearly no one would would deny that Guadalcanal was was probably the most significant land battle in the whole of the Pacific War. Yeah. Yet, yeah. yet the you know the numbers involved the numbers are, are incredibly small beer. Yeah. It depends on the location which you're fighting. Yeah. Because obviously you can only fit in so many troops. Yeah, There's exactly. so much room. Yeah, Whereas. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons it lends the war on the Eastern Front to, to such vast numbers is because yeah. it's so vast in area. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bagratine the following year is kind of 1.2 million Soviet soldiers, 4,000 or so tanks and, and AFVs. So so that's less. There's, yeah. the, that, that's less than has been... Because that's just... That's Rokossovsky's central front, isn't it? In, yes, in exactly. It's not the whole thing. Uh, uh, whereas here you've got... You, you've got the Vronia front is is a kind of a third of the area, and indeed it's a Vronia front which is fighting the Prokhorovka battle, which is the the quote unquote. Okay, here's a here's biggest a tank battle. But here's a test of its strategic importance, right? If the Germans had won, say, at Kursk, right, whatever that, yeah. you know, if they if they managed to, you know, straight the line, got rid of the bulge, slice off the bulge. Get loads of get loads of Soviet troops into the bag and all that, because after all, one of the one of the aims. Is, is to get their hands, you know, because 1941, 42, two million Soviet prisoners are starved to death, right? By 1943, it's an explicit objective of the German summer offensive. To get to a million prisoners. It's to capture as many Red Army soldiers as possible so they can use them for forced labour. Because yeah, they haven't... Completely. I mean, I mean, for God's... Oh, we're running out, boss. <laughs> for God's sake. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's just all so... So stupid, um, uh, uh, stupid, and isn't it? Tragic and disgusting and wasteful. You know, th- they're also realizing that that their reputation is for killing Russians, starving Russians to death. That they need to they need to change the dial on that somehow. So let's say they win. Let's say they take half a million Soviet prisoners. They shorten the line. It's at what cost? They, you know, let's say they do win that. They straighten the line. They're not going to be doing anything else that year as a result, are they? They're going to be burned out, played out, worn out, um, uh, have enough of a problem. You know, you, 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 let's say you do encircle those those Soviet soldiers. You've got these prisoners to take care of. You've got porous, as we talked about in the last episode. It's all very porous. There's partisans everywhere. This is more people going into the partisan crowd as much as into the bag, probably. You know what I mean? So let's say that. So what does it do? Like, if the Germans win in Kursk in '43, well, well, it, uh, it it is absolutely impossible to consider them them winning at Kursk and straightening that line and getting through all those defensive lines without having taken a hammering. Yeah, they, they, they just got it because, of yeah. course, when you're on the when you're on the offensive, it, you, you you're losing more than you are when you're on the defensive. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're the Russians, of course. Yeah, but but but, you, but but generally speaking, that that's the rule of thumb, and it's a good rule of thumb. I, I mean, and the, the defenses are 110 kilometers deep. <laughs> it's just yeah. So 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 they might straighten the line. There might be a little sort of mini bulge, but yeah. but it might be straightened. They might have got through the kind of the first six lines of defensive positions, all the rest of it. But the idea that the, the Red Army w- couldn't absorb, yeah, um, even a million losses, I know, which I they know. could, I know, <laughs> with their six point four million strong Red Army, including the NKVD, is 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 obviously mistaken. Yeah, and. The Red Army absolutely would counterattack at some point, and the weakened Germans would be facing another encirclement, and and exactly. that is what would happen. So, uh, my suspicion is that you would have another um, offensive. Um, it probably would happen in the autumn in the in the snow, yeah. which the Russians would be better at than than the Germans. Yeah. Yeah. And I suspect they would still have Operation Bagratia, and it'd just be kind of you know four hundred miles further east than it would at the time. But it doesn't mean say the outcome would be any less. I mean, this is this is the this is the thing, isn't it? Because even though the Germans, there's the famous Guderian quote, isn't there? It is a matter of profound indifference to the world whether we hold Kursk or not. I repeat my question: Why do we want to attack in the east at all this year? And Hitler says, according to Guderian, you're quite right. 
Whenever I think of this attack, my stomach turns over. And of course, Guderian's the only witness for that. And he's trying to create some breathing space between him and the decision. And the, and My lie blame... detector is just going... Well, yeah, whoop! Exactly. <laughs> blame it on the Fuhrer. You know, all this I am, do you know what? The more, I, the more I think about Guderian, the more I look into Guderian, I think he was an, a piece of work times 10. <laughs> I was going to say something really rude then, but I'm not going to. Because yes. Yes, I don't want to offend anyone. But, he's but, a but, wrong you know, He's a Roman. He's an absolute Roman. Don't forget, he's chief of staff. He's on the honour courts, yeah. all that kind of stuff. He's just yeah. horrible. Yeah, he tries to blame it all on Zeitzler in the end, doesn't he? He's, he's just, uh, yeah, for what, I mean, what an ass. Yeah. Horrible, it, horrible, megalomaniacal, kind of arrogant piece of work. Yeah. I mean, because I do think it is worth it is worth wondering if it lets because because if if Zhukov's right, if it is the most important strategic battle of the Second, you know, the, or a decisive strategic battle of the Second World War. Then what if the what if the decision is reversed? Uh, uh, you know, what if the Germans win? I still don't. I don't think it is. I don't think the Germans would have won a decisive strategic victory with it. So it's it, it's it's, it's impossible. It's 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 absolutely impossible for that to have been a decisive. But victory. it's interesting though, isn't it? Is that is that that the Germans are playing for high strategic stakes and are wrong, are, are wrong in doing so. The Soviets are playing for high strategic states and are and are right in that assessment. And and I think, as ever, the more you delve into the way these decisions get made, Hitler's strategic sense just comes over as worse and worse. Worse and, and worse. And worse, doesn't it? He hasn't got any. He hasn't got any sense. And the idea that what we need, what we need is a victory at this point. Because, because, uh, and it's always this thing, and it's interesting because it comes back to this, because a lot of his thinking, you know, in the early spring of, um, of uh, you know, and certainly by May, you know, Dortmund, Dortmund has had more tons of bombs dropped on it than the Britain has. Yeah. You know, on the 24th of May, mm -hmm. you know, Army Group Africa surrender on the 13th of May, 14th of May, you know, the, 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 the U-boats, Donut says the U-boat will... U-boats are done for. We've lost. 16th of May, dams raid. Exactly. Uh, don't underplay that. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking no truck of anyone who does. Yeah, exactly. So Hitler then says, well, the only way to... It, well, what we're going to have to do then is, is create a decision in the East. And it's always this thing, isn't it, of... We need to create a decision somewhere else other than the place where everything's gone really wrong. Well, well how about falling behind the Dnieper? Yeah. And what's the, what's, the, what's the river that sort of goes down through north of there, um, through... You know what is now sort of edge of the Russian Belarus border. Um, by that, that's where you want to go. Yeah, get behind a get behind a, a nice big fat north south river. Yeah, uh, and bed in. Then you don't have any of the losses that you've suffered. Yeah, you shorten your lines. You should you you you've reduced the amount of partisans operating against you. Yeah, you, you you're starting to control the battle space in a way that you're not yeah. at, at Kursk at all. Yeah. yeah. Because you've allowed, because you've sat on your ass and you've allowed, you've allowed trying to build yourself up, and you've allowed the Red Army to build these unbelievable defences. Yeah, it, you know, you've still got the breadbasket of Europe. You've still got most of Ukraine. You've yeah. still got all of Poland. You've still got Belarusia. You, you've still got the Baltic states. Yeah, shore that up and make it really difficult for the Red Army to do. Because yeah. as you move back, their their lines are extending. Yeah, you destroy everything as you go back. Blow up all the bridges. You, you've bought yourself a year. You've yeah. literally bought yourself a year. At least, yeah. Well, and then you build 110 kilometre deep defences. Totally. I That's mean, what you do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but on the 1st of July, saying, you know, that the, the battle in the East is a battle for Lebensraum, without which the German Reich and the German nation cannot exist. You've got loads of Lebensraum. Exactly. You've got exactly. an area that's sort of exactly. twice the size of Germany already. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mad. I mean, you know, thank God he was so bonkers in many ways. But, uh, you know, it's just... Just the decision-making full stop, operational, tactical, strategic in the East yeah. by the Germans is, is insane. It, yeah. Right from the word go. You know, just imagine they'd got to they'd got to Dnieper and dug in then. But they're all in there. I know, then they need oil, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But, but, you know, there's, there's other ways around that. You've got coal fields. You know, you, as we've discussed ad finitum, getting to the Caucasus isn't going to help you because yeah. you're not going to be able to get your hands on that oil in any meaningful way. Yeah. So don't bother. And you've got, you do have people, you do have people like Manstein saying we need to shorten the lines, tidy up. That 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 conversation is being had, but the problem is, is is there's you know an offensive mindset. This idea, I mean, how on earth after the loss of Stalingrad, you think well, all we need to do is you know strike a blow at the Red Army and it'll collapse like a house of cards, or or whatever or whatever it is that's making them 
making them think that way, making them think they can deliver. Because, you know, it, it, they, know how, they know how deep the defences are in May, don't they? If they'd known how deep they were by July, they wouldn't have bothered. They'd, have, they'd have not bothered. Look where Kursk is. Look where Orwell is. Yeah. It's freaking miles from Berlin. I mean, yeah, yeah, such a yeah, yeah, long distance. Yeah, yeah. I know we were doing those, those kind of sort of Google Earth measurement, Google Maps yeah. measurements, weren't we, to Rostov and stuff. Yeah. And it's not as far as that, but it's still a hell of a long way. It's a yeah. long way away. You know, you're de- you're dealing with distances which are, are just absurd. Mm-hmm. And the further you go into the Soviet Union, the bigger your partisan problem is, the bigger your lines of communication is, the, the, the quicker you're reaching your culmination point and extending your culmination point. Mm. So, that, so clearly the answer is to move back yeah. and move back behind a nice fat river of, of yeah. which there are so many. It's just you know it's it's you know treat treat some of those rivers like you would the English Channel you know it's not it's not it's not rocket science you know <laughs> Russians haven't got lots of boats and yeah landing craft and things well, which I mean is, which is why after all you know you do you you do you do end up I suppose the flip of this is Stalin saying well it's like a river crossing going over the channel isn't it yeah but they can't even do that and when they <laughs> yeah, do exactly, the, the red even... army send their send their, their Airborne troops is an absolute disaster, it's isn't it? It's a complete disaster, yeah. Anyway, so, you so, know, sort of you know, QED. Anyway, so, we, so we, we've sorted out the German leadership. We know how to fight their battles for them. <laughs> it's very easy sitting from in my... Oh, it's As the rain streaks down the window in my, <laughs> my house in Cornwall. <laughs> to be very clever about what the Germans should have done. Uh, right, so... <laughs> so, what, so what did happen, though? So the Germans are 900,000... Soldiers of a of a total army of four million assault troops two hundred fifty thousand artillery ten thousand soldiers tanks and sp they've got two thousand seven hundred tanks and sps but counting counting the tanks are they assault tanks are they command tanks what you know actually what these make up and I think the point Ben Wheatley makes very well in in um in his in his book about Popovka is that German tank units are a hodgepodge they've got a bit of everything there's there's Panzer threes fours it's a bugger's muddle is the best way of putting it. And that yep. that then causes the concomitant knock on with spares and all that stuff. They do have things like elephants, which come in come in extremely handy when when it turns into a sort of uh uh great big tank pheasant shoot at one point. Yep. People who've listened to this podcast, a lot of people have the slenderest grasp of um how military stuff works is it's a three to one advantage to a press an assault, to, to press an assault, isn't it? This is what's required. But- very, very ba- basic. Ba- basic, right? So the Germans have nine hundred thousand troops. The Red Army have two point four million, and it is the yeah. Germans. And, and can I, do, can, I can, we do, can we just do our usual clarification here? Yeah. When we talk about nine hundred thousand people met, we're not yeah. talking about nine hundred thousand men attacking. No, no. We're talking about nine hundred thousand men. Full stop. Yeah, and there's you a know, quarter got, of a million assault troops. Yeah. So you've got two armies attacking. You've got you've got Hoke's fourth army, yeah. which is attacking on the base of the yeah. Kursk. Bulge at 5 a.m. German time on the 5th of July. Yeah. And you've got Moodles, our great friend Moodle, yeah. um, uh, later of obviously uh, Arnhem, etc., yeah. um, uh, with his 9th Panzer Army attacking on the north side yeah. at 6 a.m. German time, which I yeah. think, if I remember rightly, is an hour later than yeah. the Soviet time. So 5 a.m. and 4 a.m. Soviet time. And lots of their tanks break down. So so it's not that they're knocked out. They, they break down because they're covering too big a distances and all the rest of it. And this is this is one of the problems that they have all the time is they haven't got enough spare parts, they haven't got enough fuel, they haven't got enough forward support teams, they haven't got those um, armoured recovering vehicles yeah. um, that, that the British and the Americans have in, in such abundance. Yeah. And, you know, you're expecting a lot of them yeah. mechanically. So they don't get very far, um, and they barely get to the third line of defences. Um, and I think... Um, Modal's army doesn't get more than twelve kilometers in three days. Well, let's uh, so days. let's so let's set the let's set the scene about um what the what the Soviets know and what their preparations actually amount to, and uh, and r- we talked about Rokosovsky last time. Who, I mean, when you look at his, you know, that he's a pole, that he's that he ends up he ends up Polish defense minister after the war and all sort of stuff. His is his is an amazing sort of uh, trajectory yeah. that that he's purged. Like as you said last week, he he re- he returns to discover everyone's wearing old style um, uh, imperial army imperialist b- b- uh, a uniform and all this sort of stuff. I mean the life that the life that man led and the and also the sort of uh, 
courage, moral courage. He ret- I mean, you could call it moral courage for a Soviet leader if you want. You know, that he was still able to stick up for himself and, and, and tell Stalin when he thought he was wrong. I mean, and it, a, a truly extraordinary man, I suppose, because he thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? It's already happened to me. Um, uh, I've lost him my teeth, lost him my nails. Yeah, yeah well, you know, whatever. Um, but so he's nearly <laughs> lost killed. He's ne- on the eve of battle, he's nearly killed, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the Germans do. I mean, Germans. It's not like they don't have good intelligence. So they know. They know where he's staying. He's staying in this this white cottage in this in this little village, which is literally bang halfway between the northern edge of the Kursk perimeter and the um, salient and and yeah. and Kursk itself. Uh, and it just so happens that he's gone to the to the mess next door. When the strike happens, the whole house is destroyed, God. and he just happens to not be in there. So he's had a a lucky break. I mean, his whole life is yeah, is yeah. just he's unlucky. But that he's incredibly lucky. Yeah. What I keep meaning to do is read his autobiography. Oh, did he write a memoir? He wrote a memoir, yeah, yeah, which was published in the in the in the I think the late fifties or sixties or something, and then and then it was sort of you know it was it was pretty savagely um, edited for for Soviet taste, yeah, and then course. then there's a kind of unexpurgated version somewhere. There are there are editions. It's not. I mean, basically, it's not on Kindle. Um, <laughs> So therefore, it doesn't exist. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Yeah, <laughs> just that, it's quite an interesting more... read, Yeah, I think it'd be a fascinating read. But so him and Vatutin, they 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 both know about Citadel because after all, there's the you you know when 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 you've been sat there op- eyeballing each other um uh, for so long, you've got the yeah. you, you've got aggressive patrolling, all that sort of stuff going on, picking uh-huh. people up, capturing them, um uh, interrogating them, trying to find out. You've got people defecting because I mean I. Yep. I you know, I think one of the interesting things is, is you know, if you're if you're a, 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 an Ostarbeiter in Germany, then you're probably thinking, well, the war might be going our way right now. And and so similarly, if you're a, if you're a, a Lancer, um, you know, maybe you were in the Communist Party. It's the other thing is is that the, the German army has conscripted absolutely everybody, isn't it? So maybe you're in the Communist Party and you think or you used to be or your dad was and you think, well, actually, Maybe now's the moment to to uh, defect, so that so there's a fair deal of there's a fair deal of that kind of transmission of intel of simple human on the on the front line going on, as well as Cairn Cross with his dr- driving his packages of of direct tunny decrypts to the yes. to his Soviet handler, uh, the Lucy al- circuit in Switzerland. Yeah, you've also got this very simple form of intel, which is blokes being picked up. Blokes defecting, being interrogated, and you know they catch some on the night the fourth or fifth of July. They catch some engineers, don't they? Uh, uh, they catch some yeah. German sappers who say, "Well, you know, all right." I mean, um, uh, how this information is extracted? I mean, let, let's put it this way: you know, you're captured by the Red Army. <laughs> you're going to talk, or you're going to climb up? Yeah, and uh, uh, my suspicion is I would talk. I just don't want to. Yeah, I think I, I would as well. I think, I I think I'd come over quite proudly. I, I don't want to make any claims for my character here. Um, but, yeah. um, so they know, they know the start time and Rokosovsky has to go, right, okay, well, I, I believe that or not. Because as we said again last week, this is an artillery battle, really. Yeah. Which is the thing that, the thing that, you know, great big long lines of panzers uh, photograph well, but they don't tell the story. And. No. And the Soviets are going to basically are going to shell the German start line, aren't they? You know, um, yeah. at H hour, which is what they do. And I mean, you yeah. know, that's gonna that's gonna uh, discombobulate you to put well, it Spoil your plans. I mean, that's no plan survives contact with the enemy knowing what your plan is, isn't it? <laughs> never, <laughs> never mind. No, no plan survives contact with the enemy. You know, and this is this is the this is the thing is the Soviet Union, and it's interesting, this isn't it? Because it was one of the things when when the war in Ukraine started. A lot of people talked about that the Russians are into artillery. Artillery's their thing, and you know whether that whether that's actually how things have panned out in Ukraine or not is is a is, is a different story. But this is. The signature of the Red Army, isn't it, is that they are going to absolutely plaster you with artillery, and they that they're attacking the start line as the Germans are forming up the start line. You know, it's it's going to ruin your day, isn't it? Yeah, because you know we've been talking about this sort of five hundred kilometer perimeter and and you know depth of you know north to south two hundred fifty kilometers, blah 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 blah. But actually, what you're talking about is a, a comparatively narrow front at the north yep. and at the south, which is at the is at the at the base of the of the salient. Exactly. So they're not doing it in the western bit. They're doing it in the eastern edge of the salient yeah. and trying to kind of pinch it out in one massive great... Encirclement, yeah. yeah. Great encirclement because, you know, 
that's what happens in the Soviet Union when you've got a large amount of space and, and relatively few few troops yeah. compared to the space you've got that you, you want to do the biggest encirclement you can. Yeah. So that's what they're doing. So actually, there's got a concentration of force, and that's also obviously a, a German thing. So you've got, you know, just the, you're attacking with these two armies in, in quite strong density, which then means you've got a fairly strong target for all that that Soviet artillery. Those twenty thousand artillery pieces, <laughs> artillery pieces that come kind of one gun every ten meters. I mean, I mean yeah. you know, uh, is it any wonder after five days that that Modal's forces have only gone twelve kilometers? What's yeah. that? Seven miles? Yeah, yeah. God, you know, which incidentally is what Second Army managed in one day at Operation Goodwin, and everyone said, "Cool, you know, they're really slow." Yeah, they slowed up. They slowed a bit slow there, didn't it? Failed. Goodwin. Well, but but then, you know. Uh, uh, Kursk fails in that regard, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, it is. It is interesting because because the Germans have succeeded in big encirclements that the, the you know the, the year before last, haven't they? So they're obviously thinking yep. we just need to get the ball rolling again. And this is what I yep. think is really interesting. But they just think they're be- they think they're superior. They think they're they're superior beings, and they when the yeah they think they've got better better tactically better tactical delivery. And, all, all, you know, how hard can it be? We've done it before. And I think what's really, really interesting here, and we talked we talked about this before with regards to 1943, is that, is that everyone but the Germans seems to be learning at this point. And obviously, obviously, I've walked into a minefield of generalisation there, but the Germans, the Germans are applying, you know, it's like Wellington saying, saying of Waterloo, they came at us in the same old way and we saw them... Mo- Saw them, saw them off in the same old way. Whatever that quote is, you know, where yeah, basically, yeah. you know, he, you, you know, Wellington had been practicing on on marshals trained by Napoleon in Napoleon's style of war, and then when he runs into Napoleon, Napoleon does what he's been practicing. Napoleon always does what he's always does. What they did, like like good like good marshals, they did as they're told. And in a sense, what you have here, so Germans are going to Germans are going to do it the same old. We're going to play the old tune and hope it hope it works again. But the Soviets have bought, have learned, and also, as we said last week, Lend-Lease is Lend-Lease has, has, has sort of enabled them to do that. Yeah, I can't I can't think anywhere where they're learning. I mean, everyone, everyone talks about a lot about the second half of the war about the Germans' amazing ability to defend and and their their determined defence and the brilliance of of their determination. Fighting yourself down so that your division has become kind of less than the size of a single infantry company. Yeah, isn't really tactical brilliance. That's just ruthlessness and determination. The determination doesn't mean say you're skilled at it. It just means right. you're not going to give up. It's like, yeah. these are not the same things. Yeah, you know. And we talked a bit a bit about this in in Normandy and and also in in Italy. There is no sense at all in divide, in defending close to the Normandy coastline in 1944. No, there's no sense at all in defending the Gustav Line or the Bernhard Line to the degree that they do. All you're doing is you're just you're just absolutely shattering entire divisions yeah and you're just putting one one after and what, what you see them doing in in italy for example is they start kind of pushing in penny packets they're splitting up divisions they're putting you know regiments in here battalions in their companies x y z and mixing them all up that's not that's not skilled military no 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 tactics. no 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 that's, no, no, that's no. Just... no 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 they're forming groovy camp gripper no yes they are hey hey D- don't you dare diss my Kampfgruppe here. The Germans are forming. <laughs> I am so. I'm gonna. I'm. I, uh, do you know? The more I think about Kampfgruppers, the more I think that that they're. Uh, as Steve Friend said, it's 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 the freedom of property. That they're they're, a, they're well, a, an essential but, sign but, of but fundamental think, weakness. But do you not think that that the sort of the sort of fixation on Kampfgruppe is basically and the sort of intellectual fixation on it as as a, a fascination with it is they're making a virtue of a necessity. You know what I mean? Yeah, completely. Yeah, and and so so how does how does that what does that tell us apart from the fact they're in the shit that, that if they're having to form Kampfgruppe? Well, it, it tells you that they're completely in the shit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and it, it tells you that, that it's time to to, to end the war. Yeah. PDQ. Yeah. yeah, that's what it's telling you. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, that's not going to happen. But but we we you know everyone's just got to got to move away from this idea that, that that this is a sign of tactical genius. It's not. It's a sign of desperation, yeah. and it, and it's a sign of determination not to give up. But but. Determination not to give up, impressive though it might be, does not equate to tactical brilliance. Yeah, but but um, well, I'll tell you what, we'll take a break because um, uh, we're determined not to give up on the battle. Oh, I tell you what, we just we just there's a big can and it's got worms in it. I know that's why we, we need to we, we all need to go away. So we cup, need to take a break. Take a glass have a of cup water. of tea. Have a think. Come back. Yeah, we'll see you in a moment. 
Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk uh, with me, Al Murray and James Holland. I mean, the uh, determination to resist is an attractive thing in the 1950s and 60s if you think you've got a Cold War nuclear war coming. So that's why, that's why it's such an, I think, so much of this historiography and so much of this way of looking at this historiography is because there's an expe expectation in NATO thinking and American and British thinking uh, 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 after the war with the prospect of a Cold War that you are going to find yourself probably in a similar situation to the Germans, overwhelmed by Soviet mass. And how are you going to motivate and organise yourselves in it, when that happens? And so what you're going to do is you're going to look at what the Germans did and they formed Kampfgruppe. That's brilliant. So we'll form battle groups and because we're going to have to, because we're going to be overwhelmed. Yeah. And, yep. and I, think, I think so much of it so much of this is coloured by the Cold War, by the the, pos the I'm prospect, sure you're right. prospect of what a Cold War confrontation might be like. The historiography around Kursk has coloured so much of um, of how Kursk has been sort of delivered to us. Down, to, you know, that there are revisionist camps in every single direction around Kursk, and we, you know, one of the first things we mentioned talking about this was revisionism. Was the revisionism around the battle? But before we, I mean, let, let, let's let's proceed with the battle itself because the rabbit holes. Well, here. Uh, all right, we, we, let's. But let's just, just let me just say my last my last little thing because I think the, the the perfect German battle formation or the ideal German German battle formation is a Panzer division yep. of nineteen forty to forty one. Yeah, you know, clearly it's it's an it's an all arms unit yep. of, of motorized infantry, motorized reconnaissance vehicles, motorized anti tank guns, yep. motorized artillery. And of course, Panzers as well. Yeah, it 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 it's got it's the complete package, and it can operate under its own steam, and and it's self-supporting. When we think about German brilliance and 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 German tactical flair and all the rest of it, that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about that Panzer yeah. Panzer division that's storming yeah. through the Balkans, yeah. that's storming across the, the yeah. River Meuse. Yeah, it's it's not Kursk. Yeah, it's just not. You know, you've got some brilliant people there. You've got some. Highly experienced guys who know what they're doing, of course you have. Um, and there's some very, very, very good units with the German army right into 1944. You've also got the this same thing. old, same people at the very top who think all we've got to do is do what we did in 1940 and everything will play out for us. Therein lies the problem. Uh, and, and the biggest problem, of course, is, is Hitler himself. He's constantly insisting everyone don't give up a yard. And, and they simply don't have enough to be able to afford that kind of tactic. Anyway, anyway, back to the battle. Back to the battle. Um, uh, so, so, so the, the battle when everyone talks about it, really, what they're talking about, and they're talking about the Brockerock. And our friend Karl Heinz Frieser, he was a guy who did Blitzkrieg Legend, who kind of sort of you know deconstructed the whole Blitzkrieg of nineteen forty, which is just an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, an amazing book, an amazing piece of work. And of course, he's absolutely bang on. He he was invited to to Moscow in nineteen ninety three. So you know, yeah. I'm Kurt's fallen down, it's all post that. And he comes and delivers this talk. And there's this absolute myth about the fact that 300 German tanks, which then became 400 German tanks, and yeah. 55 Panzers, which then became 75 Panzers, that were destroyed at Prokhorovka on the 12th of July or whatever it was, um, the, um, 1943. He said, there's only evidence that three were destroyed yeah. in this battle. Yeah. Not 400, not 300, yeah. three. Uh, there were sort of, you know, audible gasps from from the various people who were listening. But it turns out he was completely right. Yeah. Because two Panzer IVs got destroyed earlier on in the day. Yeah. Then another one got knocked out. Yeah. And a tiger got hit and was abandoned. So it's actually four. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. That is it at Prokhorovka. Well, and and uh, but the story is that Friesler was approached by veterans afterwards and said, yeah, that is what happened. Yeah. Our recollections of this, that and the other. You're quite right. Which is it? Which is which is interesting. So you know that the official accounts are horseshit, but you know in, in the in the in Soviet historiography, you know there's this this thing of called you know lying and and fabricating that, that, that you have Soviet historians saying that is what we did. We we falsifying and lying in yep. order to uphold the myths of the great patriotic patriotic war. You know, but. Uh, but 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 <laughs> Prokhorovka is still a defeat for the Germans yes, exactly. because they don't the take other... Prokhorovka village. They don't get on the ridge. Yeah. So, so it's this undulating countryside. There's 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 hill two yeah. four two point five or whatever it's called. Yeah. And, and and they're advancing up there and they can't clear it. And that's because of the the, the weight of Soviet guns, yeah. artillery. Yes. 
they're not actually destroying the German tanks, but they're 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 prohibiting the German armor from getting forward. Yeah, which I always, you know, and I, and I find the whole thing just completely baffling. One one of the reasons why so many Red Army tanks get lost, get 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 destroyed, is because they come down the hill, down the ridge line, which is which is a pretty gentle ridge line. Yeah, and there's this railway that goes goes sort of north south, and extending from one side of it is an anti tank ditch. Yeah, and basically they go straight into it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the problem. They suddenly go, ooh, um, okay, so lots of our tanks have got destroyed in the anti tank ditch, and the rest of them bunch up. Well, they're Boston basically like Daleks at the bottom of stairs, bottom of a staircase, aren't they? Yeah. But that's basically what happens. Yeah. Uh, and but, but what I can't understand is why don't the Germans press that? You know, if they've only lost three tanks all day on the 12th of July, why don't they press their attack a little bit harder? I mean, you know, this is an incredible statistic about about... What we're talking about here is is two SS Panzer Corps later in, in Normandy in summer yeah. 1944. Yeah. And on the 11th of July, dawn on the 11th of July, they've got 339 operational armoured fighting vehicles. So this is self-propelled guns, slugs and what have you, yeah. plus Panzer fours and the occasional the odd, odd Panther and Tigers. Well, hardly very many. They're mainly Panzer fours, threes and, and Stooks. Yeah. Martyrs. Yeah. And on the 18th of July, they've got 349. So they've actually got 10 more than they did a week earlier. But what are they doing? Why aren't they pressing home that attack? If that's that's the bit that I'm not quite clear on, but they don't, because usually Germans are willing to take a lot more hits than than yeah four tanks, yeah three Panzer fours and a. It's and because a, they know it's the artillery. It's because they know the artillery. You know, you, you you might be able to move the tanks about, but but not without accompanying infantry to deal with an anti-tank screen and to deal with defences, or without sappers to deal with these hundred and ten kilometers of anti-tank ditches and so on i mean this is the this is the point is that they have bitten off far more than they can chew it's not the it's not the the game of old is it, it, it and they know no. this all the way down you know you staff officer diaries saying as much saying you know we we, we got this wrong and you've got a partisan uh, offensive going on as well i mean i think what's really interesting though is that hitler calls it calls it a day on the 12th of july so they've, they've barely been going a week you think of other things which have been sticky for the Germans, where they're a week in, things aren't necessarily going to come to plan, but they push on. It is interesting that there there isn't that kind of um, air in the balloon that there would have been a year earlier or yeah. a year before that. That the that well, thing... well, well, yes, and the reason he calls it off is because of Sicily. Well, yes, but because Allied invasion of Sicily. But my immediate thought about that is, oh, I've always promised I would if the Allies attacked the Mediterranean, I'd call it off. Well, you knew they were going to attack in the Mediterranean. Where else were yeah, they, they going? But they might have attacked. They might have attacked till August, or something. Yeah, well, but that that feels to me. That feels to me. You know, we we you know we know he's the great prevaricator. Hitler is a Hitler's a king of prevarication. Hates yeah. actually making decisions. Hates making decisions. Makes them as as last minute as he possibly can. If he can possibly avoid making a decision, he will. And this just feels to me. This I was going to call it off if they invaded the Mediterranean. Feels like the guy has his exit already. He's got. He, yeah, maybe. You know that. Yeah, maybe because that's what that's what prevaricators do. That they, they have they have other options already. Like oh well, you know I well I was always going to cancel it if they invaded in, in the. Mediterranean, yeah, but they're always going to invade in the Mediterranean, so you're always going to cancel it. You know, it, 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 he, he often has his excuses lined up, Hitler, doesn't he? Is that those ducks in a row? That's a very, very good point. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. I, I think there is a bit of that going on, uh, and also, you know, by the 12th of July, what, what is absolutely clear is that they're banging their heads against Rip War, and they're not going to be able to break through. Yeah, that's the point. You know, if they've only gone 12, seven miles in a week. Yeah, on the northern face. Yeah, you know that's that's not going to cut it, is it? I mean, clearly, you know, the writing is on the wall. It doesn't matter. You know, Prokhorovka, Shmukarovka. I mean, okay. who cares? I mean, so I'm going to. Really... It's got no. It's got nothing to do with it at all. It's it's it's, it's you're not going to win. Yeah. So therefore, call it off. Okay. So what I'm going to do here, Jim, is I'm going to go for a really extended piece of um, blue sky thinking here. Is that Operation Mincemeat wins the Battle of Kursk? There you go, because. <laughs> Okay. Hitler is fooled about Allied intentions in the Mediterranean. Yep. <laughs> is then surprised by Allied developments in the Mediterranean and calls off Kursk. So it's not just that the, uh, you know, really Colin Firth at the end of that film should be going, we saved an awful lot of Soviet lives today. 
So it's actually, that script is one of the best bits of historical writing ever, almost. If yes. you just said Soviet Union. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to digest this. This <laughs> Come colossal on. bombshell. Come on. <laughs> you know, we sometimes you've got to think big, Jim. You've got to join the dots. Yep. That's all you've got to do. Join it's the dots. It's all to do with mincemeat. <laughs> Holy moly. All right. Although I thoroughly recommend people go and see it in the, the musical in the West End, which is which uh, plays up the ridiculous. Let's put it that way. So I'm... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think what is absolutely clear by the summer of 1943, regardless of Operation Mincemeat, or indeed animals, or indeed the, the extensive yeah. work of Dudley Clark at all um, in Deception Plans, yeah. is, is that... That you know they they they've got too much to do with with too little yeah. you know clearly and yeah. and they're too spread and 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 the person making decisions is an idiot and the person making decisions is an idiot exactly yeah. so you know the, 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 there's a rub I mean it, it's obvious that you should pull off off you should you should call off Citadel because it's 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 clearly not going to work but but that begs the question of why start it in the first place yeah um which we already talked about so yeah, yeah, yeah. you know clearly they shouldn't have done I mean it, <laughs> yeah. it's a it's a it's a it's a terrible yeah, idea. Yeah. Um but but obviously the fighting just keeps going. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and there's no question that the Red Army loses a hell of a lot more than the Germans in the process. But but you know, Rokosovsky launches his his um counterattack. Yeah. This is operational Kudusov. Yeah. Um Orel is taken on fourth of August. So it's not just a question of kind of pushing the Germans back there twelve kilometers they've taken. You're pushing them all the way back to Orel, which is, you know, another kind of hundred plus miles. North of well, no, it's about two hundred miles north of Kursk. Amazing. But in the south, you've got you've got Operation um, Rumyantsev, um, and by the twenty third of July, Red Army are back at the start of Zitadel, um, uh, and then Rumyantsev itself is launched on the third of August. Yeah, right, and Belgorod, that that city that's changed hands several times, is encircled by the fifth of August. Yeah, three thousand German dead left in the ruins of Belgorod. Jesus, you know that's a lot. Uh, and then on the 22nd of August, Kharkov is finally... Again. Uh, again. Uh, and this time, you know, the day after the Red Army are in Kharkov, well, this time it's for the last time. That's that, that that's that's for good. I mean, you, you know, it's 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 an incredible counterattack. And so the the Battle of Kursk is... It's not that the salient... The salient is removed. It, it is removed, but in the opposite direction. Yes. And and, and in, in a way, Zitadel is incidental to, the, to, to what the Soviets achieve. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, and so instead, instead of being Zitadel with one one divided operation north and south going into trying to to pinch out the yeah. salient, yeah. the response is two completely independent operations by the by the Voronya Front and the Central Front, yeah. Rokossovsky and Vitutin, yeah. launching north northwards and northwestwards and south and southwestwards. Yeah. So that the, the Germans are, are, are come, trying to pinch, they're, they're pushed back, and and it's like an exploding, like an exploding shell. Yeah. out of the Kerr salient, effectively. Yeah. And that's what it looks like in terms of the expansion of the, of the front line. Then there's a, there's an almighty pause because, you know, the Red Army's lost 6,000 tanks and God knows how many yeah. how many men in the process. Uh, and, you know, and they have to do that big pause piece when everyone sort of regathers again. And, and suddenly the pattern for the last two years of the war is, is absolutely set by the Red Army. The, this notion that you have a massive, great punch and then you pause for a while you rebuild up strength, and then you have another swing of the battering ram again. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, then yeah, you yeah. do it again. Yeah, uh, and and you, you know what? What is what? What the Red Army realise is that this is an incredibly expensive way of doing things in terms of manpower, particularly. But but it's the way to if you've got a not particularly well trained armies, which you increasingly have. What you're doing is you're bringing your assets to bear to the best of their ability, yeah. which is to overwhelm the enemy, which is what they're doing. Yeah, this is part of the deep battle and all the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. I it's it's I mean it is interesting because Zhukov is Zhukov is right. It is it is the uh, for the Soviets are made it, it, you know, it offers great strategic deliverance, doesn't it? Um on the year. Well it shows that Stalingrad's not a one off. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. And it's it, it shows that you you've now got the enemy beaten and you, you you've now comprehensively defeated them in a battle. And your and the initiative is 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 yours as a as a consequence. Totally. It shows that 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 the allied sinews of supply, shipping and everything are being the, the effects of those the control of those sinews. Um a, yep. a mastery of industrialization, those those effects are now everywhere. 
that they're being felt yep. in every theater in every in every single way that they possibly could be so so i mean really it sets the tone for the next two years it also shows that yep. the, the the germans aren't capable of of facing the reality of the situation they find themselves in at all yep. um that they think that that this offensive is going to create some sort of ma- massive strategic deliverance on the year like a knockout blow or victory or whatever they're calling it although obviously you have to call every big attack a knockout blow you have to you know you you, you can't say well well this will grind them down a bit lads carry on can you you've got to no you've got to fill people with you know what montgomery called binge you've got to get them up for it yeah and tell them this yeah. is the decisive blow this year on the eastern front but actually zitadel amounts to tinkering with the status quo when what yeah. the Soviets are interested in doing is completely rewriting the nature of the front, and I think, you know, it shows it shows that the that the seesaw has firmly gone bonk, and the big fat Soviet sat on one end, and the Germans sat on the other, and not and it's not just demonstrated in numbers; it's demonstrated in in the ambitions of the offensive and all that sort of stuff too, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you know they're now coming out of Russia. You know, they're now moving into Ukraine and into exactly. into Belarus, which is not Russia. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're they're now the allies are now in Europe because yeah. they're in Sicily. Yeah. Um. Uh, uh, the other thing we should just say is also is that we you know we touched on the last episode about the rail war, but the rail war, the the yes. rail Sovaya Vodnya, um, Gosh, is like is Vladimir is Putin's really... on the line there. <laughs> oh, it's that good my my impersonation. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but 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 that really really kicks in. Yeah. After Citadel's been launched, yeah. so you know, 1,092 attacks on German rail lines in June 1943 by yeah. by Soviet partisans, yeah. 1,460 in July. Um, you know, 44 railway bridges, 298 locomotives, and 1,233 wagons interrupted and destroyed just in June. Yeah. This is increasing in July, increasing again in August. Um, and in August, you've got 96,000 partisans cutting the rail network yeah. between 200 and 300,000 yeah. times. Yeah. And one of the big things is to kill railway crews, yeah. kill the drivers, yeah. which they do in the most bloodthirsty way. Uh, and on the night, just with one example, night of the 20th, 21st of July, um, 11 partisan brigades operating in a completely coordinated manner yeah. Attacking the main railway line south of Bryansk, barring 430 demolitions and blocking the main line for two entire days. Yeah. And so, so, so in those two days, the 20th to the to the 22nd of July, the entire German supply line is effectively yeah. paralysed in the north. Yeah. North of North of Kursk. Yeah. You know, so it's it's. I mean, boy, have the Germans bitten off more than they can chew. And and they fail to force a decision, and the Soviets. Are allowed to basically pick and choose what they want to do. That's the that that's what's happening here. Now, now the hunting ground is is clear and absolute. They can do what they like. And as they're emerging out of Russia, Stalin cares even less about about the land he's fighting over. And who who gets gobbled up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, well. I mean, I hope we Whew, we now, chewed that one, didn't we? Now, although inevitably there will be people people listening to this who who will say, "But you missed this bit. Out. What about that bit?" Yeah, yeah, well, there's room for more. But there's room for more. And I think what we'll probably do is take some of those, some of that kind of into account in the next couple of weeks, maybe. And I think yeah, the other thing maybe. That, I think the other thing we should do, because because we sort of tripped over it last week, didn't we? That that um, you know, Kasserine is the same time as Kharkiv and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. You need some good good news. I think we need to have a do another thing where we look at what's happening at the same time all over the world. Well, maybe we should do. Maybe we should pick the. Um, you know, got there's fun to be had on the 12th of July, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let's look at that then. So that week, the All week right. following the 12th of July, we'll look at. We'll look. We'll look at the 12th of July and what follows. The week that was. The week that, that was. The week that was. That was the week that was. 9:43. Um. Thanks yeah. everybody for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this. Um. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, I, enjoy, I enjoyed yeah. the sticking the knife into the camp group. <laughs> But it is. It's making a. Vir- oh, no. It's making a virtue of a necessity. It's. It. it it's. Um. Yeah. You know, a peculiar temptation, I think, for um, uh, that school of thought, really. I mean, I think yeah. I think so much of it is tangled up in the Cold War, and um, you know, people wondering how on earth do you fight the Russians? Oh, the Germans did it with Kampfgruppen. Well, that's because they were getting their asses kicked. Yeah, and not fight. You know, until not fighting a defensive war until it was too late for them, as it were. That you know. It, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, thanks everyone. All every- good. All good. Good fun. Fascinating stuff. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, I, I recommend Ben Wheatley's book, actually, especially if you like um, uh, stats, stats and charts. At one hundred and twenty-two, one hundred and twenty-two pitches, where clearly you can see, you know, the three pounds has knocked yeah, yeah, down. Yeah. You're kind of going, he's peering at it. Thinking, I need a, I need a magnifying, magnifying glasses, reading glasses. All I'm seeing is a, a bit of flat a, space, a, nothing a, in it at all. Microscope. No, he's done an amazing. He has done an amazing job. He has um, got an amazing um, job. I don't forget going around the battlefields of of, of the spring nineteen eighteen with the, with that amazing historian Lynn McDonald, and looking across at his field, she's going, "Well, clearly you can see the old defence line, the old trenches line across that field there." And you're sort of thinking, "It just looks like a king field." Well, yeah, that can happen. The practice die. The practice die. Um, you got to train yourself a bit. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. We will see you again soon. Don't forget that between the lines is on on Sundays. Our week by week soap opera of the 19 of 1943 um, taking in the war all over the world um, uh, which we hope you enjoy and I hope you enjoy listening to um, we'll see you again very soon thanks very much bye bye cheerio hello there Al Murray here now as one or two of you may know I'm partial to a glass or two of an evening Sometimes beer, quite often these days, wine. In fact, wine has appeared more than once in the pod, from stories of British soldiers discovering a hidden stash as they crossed the Rhine, to James and I trying a bottle of Ukrainian sweet wine bottled in 1939 and spirited away as the Germans approached in 1941. And now, as a listener to We Have Ways, you can enjoy a free case of wine, courtesy of our good friends at Wine52. All you need to do is go to wine52.com slash ways and cover the postage costs of £9.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered to your door. I absolutely love trying wines from different countries and Wine52 showcases revered regions like Bordeaux and Emilia-Romagna, but also exceptional wines from countries like Georgia and Bulgaria. This fantastic wine club takes you on an incredible odyssey through the world of wine. You can have the choice of mixed, red-only or white-only cases. And you also get Glug magazine, which delves into each region's wine culture, plus two tasty snacks. Your welcome case will include the beautiful Meridiano by Compagnia Mediterranea del Vino, a complex red with notes of blackberry, cherry and plum jam on the nose, and a lovely white wine called Lucasia by Agrestivini, a light and crisp wine with fresh notes of gooseberry, honeysuckle and jasmine. After your free case, you'll join the monthly wine club. No minimum commitment. If it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. So remember, that's wine52.com slash ways to claim your free case of wine today. Enjoy.